Welcome to Codex Rex, the history podcast about video games. My name is Dux, and I am your host. And who are you, young man? My, my name is Tyler, and you haven't done an episode in so long that you've forgotten how our opener goes. That was the opener that we've always done. Yes, I recommend of all of you go back to the other episodes, re-listen to all of them, and then tell me that Tyler is incorrect. Okay. Write us emails about yeah. it, actually. That's going to be yeah, fun. Yeah, write us emails. Write yes. me emails, you mean. <laughs> I, I don't have time to read those. What, if, what have you been up to except for reading our emails, Tyler? <laughs> um, well, um, I've talked to you a bit about this, but yeah. So I mentioned this on the last episode. I'm getting ready to move again. Um, packing always sucks way more than you think it does. Uh, finding a place to live is basically a part-time job. Um, but other than that... Uh, I've been playing some video games. I'm going through Stellaris again. I've got the kick, the Stellaris kick that is. Um, yeah. Playing through Bug Snacks. Mm, you guys don't know what snacks. bugs. <laughs> you guys don't know what Bug Snacks is. It's like, what if Pokemon? But if you ate them, it changed your limbs into Pokemon, and all the Pokemon are food. The weirdest like, thing about Bug Snacks is how it starts out as a game where you think this, oh, this looks cute. This is like a child's uh -huh. game, right? It's kind of fun. And then you kind of you find start seeing the darkness in the background, all the oh, yeah, all the weird shit that's going down. <laughs> yeah, everyone in that game is miserable and bummed out and horribly depressed and like. <laughs> Oh, it's just awful. Yeah, it's awful in a good way though. Like I've, I've, I wanted to come back to it. Um, nice. Also, a bunch of us have been playing this really weird indie game called Wobble Dogs. I don't know if you see anything about Wobble Dogs. Do you know what that is? No. Okay, Wobble Dogs is like, <laughs> it's like, it's like a dog breeding simulator. I guess is the best way I can put that. Um, so basically like you get these dogs and then like you can mess with their genetics and then their offspring, you can like tinker with like what their offspring will look like and you have different generations of dogs. But the kick is, uh, the trick is rather, uh, they, um, <laughs> they're like cubes with heads and legs and they, it gets really weird really quickly. Like suddenly they have like segmented eyes and wings or they've got like 12 legs or they've got no legs or like it's, it can get really weird and you can like share them with people. And we've been having a lot of fun with it. Nice. That sounds really weird, but I'm, I'm into the stuff like that. I'll check it out. Yeah. How's it going? You can, wobble dogs. Yeah. Wobble and you dogs. can like what you feed them affects their like gut flora. And that like affects like what they turn into. It's like really strange. I think I talked with Carrie about this and then just yes it just it vanished out of my mind again but I think I now it starts coming back. Yeah, I played it a bunch on my uh I tried to do a 24-hour stream but then I realized I'm too old for such things. <laughs> um uh and I played it a lot because um you know it was like a quick thing I could throw on and mess with for like an hour and then nice. you know do something else. But that's what's up with me. Uh playing some video games, packing, living life. What's up with you, man? I'm, I've I've been reading a ton of books recently, and that's, yeah. that feels really good. Like I've started the Witcher series, and I've, I've I've I don't know. I'm reading all kinds of books, and it feels good to be doing a lot of reading again. Like it's calm. It's a dad thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah, I've really enjoyed seeing um you post the you post the books in the Discord and that you've been reading, and uh, I've really been enjoying seeing what you what you're into. So if one would like to contact us, how would they do that, Tyler? Because I keep forgetting. 
Okay. So if you want to send us an email, you can hit us up at codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. I do read all of your emails. Sometimes I don't always respond to them, but I do read um, all of them. Uh, thanks to everybody who has been emailing us lately. We do appreciate your episode suggestions. Uh, we do appreciate your hate mail, as Docs calls it. <laughs> um, so thanks to all of you who have been writing in. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at codexrexpodcast. Codex Rex podcast on Twitter, and you can find me on Twitch. I'm just Vegan Tyler on Twitch. Yeah, and if you want to hang out, you can always join the Discord. Um, just just recently, someone joined in that uh, listened to us and then decided to con like hang out, and they joined the Discord, and now they're there, and that's really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was I was like, oh, <laughs> I, usually it's the other way around, right? Like I stream. And then people are like, you've got a podcast? And then they go and listen to the podcast. But it's never been the other way around that someone was like, I'm listening to this podcast and I want to hang out with these guys. So um, to that person, hey, thanks. Welcome. <laughs> we were a little smitten. So thank you. Okay. Is there anything missing or shall we start? Uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Let's get into it. Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited. It's a docs episode. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's... It, 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 um, it's just it, it's better than I expected. Let's let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> you look maniacal. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's not going right. to be Peter Molyneux good, but it's good. It's pretty good. Are you going to start this one with? All right, all right, all right. Everybody in this story is dead, and they're going to die in the story, and it's going to be really horrible. And I'm just getting it out of the way now. As far as I know, most of them are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Many of our stories um, take us into universities and like scientific institutes. Um, like, they let us follow scientists into and and like engineers who, while exploring our world, also take part in the act of creating games. And there's many reasons why these people do that. Some, like if you remember, um, Ralph Baer. Who encountered? Who mm -hmm. like, I think we encountered him in episode thirteen. He had like this hunch that something like a video game would be a necessary consequence of the development of multimedia technology, um, which and because he was witnessing it in society around him, and he thought like I, I can make money on this. Or others like if you I don't know if you remember Higginbotham from episode nineteen, who just wanted mm -hmm. to use the video game that he made, like Tennis for Two, I think. Um, as a way to teach others about his science. And then there's like people we haven't talked about yet. Like there's many examples of this. Like I, I found out another, about another dude called Sandy Douglas and he wanted to use a digital version of Tic-Tac-Toe as an example of user computer interaction, which was the topic of his PhD in 1952. Wow. So he, that's kind of, that is credited as one of the first video games. I think it doesn't warrant a whole episode because it's it's rather short, but it's on a really early computer. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's basically the first video game. And he also, he was a scientist. And he just did a proof of concept with it. And all of these people that we encountered until now, they have one thing in common, and that is that they are part of the Western Hemisphere. Hmm. Um, we rarely ever mention it, but... 
many of our stories take place in a divided world. It's a world that was plagued by something that is today known as the Cold War. And this world was divided by something that was called the Iron Curtain. And today we will jump over the Iron Curtain for the first time. Interesting. And visit the Soviet Union to learn about one of the most famous video games of all time. Oh, I know where we're going. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's start out by setting some ground truth. Um, what was the Iron Curtain? The Iron Curtain was two things. A political boundary and a physical boundary between the Soviet Union and members of the military defensive pact NATO and a few neutral states. It was a political boundary because the Soviet Union put a lot of effort into blockading any economic or ideological Western influence from itself or its so-called satellite states. But it also was a physical boundary because of the literal 4,300 miles of minefields, fences, walls, and watchtowers that separated East and West. Okay, now that we roughly know what this Iron Curtain looked like, let's go behind it. We find ourselves in Russia, where in 1955, Alexei Pajitnov was born. Alexei had a knack for puzzles. He enjoyed puzzles so much that he decided to study solving them by becoming a mathematician, by studying applied mathematics at the Moscow Aviation Institute. And after finishing his degree, he started working at the Academy of Science of the USSR, where he did research on artificial intelligence. Hmm. And as you're a scientist yourself, yeah. and you know that the basis of science is discussion, right? Sure. Or one of the bases of um, science. And science is looking at yeah. what other scientists did and telling them why it's wrong or what the fall that it like th that, that is one big aspect that you look at other th <laughs> other, other people what they claim and yeah. going like this this is why this is doesn't mm -hmm. work right so when i was learning uh, at the beginning of grad school i often felt like a lot of what i learned was literally just recognizing how someone did something and how to pick it apart like i feel like that was a common thread in all my classes was very much like, this is a really cool theory. This is a fundamental theory. This explains everything about how government works. And this is why it sucks. And this, and so the reason you do that is so that you can think on how to improve it, right? So if you can pick apart the flaws in something, you can figure out how to make it better. At least that's kind of how I thought. And so you sort of stand on the shoulders of those people, right? Like knowledge is incremental in that way that we're constantly looking back at what people did and how to innovate on that and how to change it. And describing it that briefly might might be misunderstood. Just picking it apart doesn't mean that you're a complete skeptic. Sure. It's a very difficult skill to pick these things apart properly. Mm -hmm. And me, as someone who's far younger in his scientific career, I'm, I'm currently learning these skills, and I find them very difficult to look at other people's theories and pick them apart in a way that makes sense. So I'm always fascinated by people that that managed to to master these skills. I would also and say, it's, it's, no, I'm sorry to talk over you. Uh, I I would also say that it's also easier to pick something apart and expose all of its flaws than it is to suggest something different, right? And so absolutely. this is like a big thing. Um, even in my dissertation. I use these particular uh, ways of measuring political polarization. And um, 
you know, basically this idea, you know, like Democrats and Republicans are kind of far apart uh, ideologically, and I won't get into a bunch of dissertation stuff, but there are a lot of critiques of the particular data that I use because it's based on some voting patterns and things of that nature. But the question always comes, like everybody picks it apart. Everybody wants to say all these problems with it and they are correct. But then it's always, well, what would you do then that's better? right? Like what other data do you have that goes back this far? What other data do you have that is this robust? And it's really easy to, sorry, I got on a rant here. It's really easy to pick all these things apart and talk about their flaws, but it's really hard to then suggest a way to, you know, keep the good things about it and fix the bad things about it. And that's, you know, the entire discipline's built around that idea. Thanks for your insight on that. Do my best. (laughs) So this is, this is why the scientific consensus is so unstable, right? Because it constantly is revising itself through hundreds of skeptics trained in critical thought. And one might imagine that something like the Iron Curtain that also functioned as an informational blockade did not nourish a scientific environment, right? Right. So if enforced as strictly with the Academy of Science as it was with the rest of society, it would cause the Soviet Union to fall behind on scientific achievement. Mm -hmm. The government of the USSR was aware of this and knew that there had to be slight exceptions to the rule. And this is why Alexei and his colleagues occasionally would get new hardware from abroad. In Alexei's words, so people occasionally sent us new hardware we'd assess how powerful it was by writing a simple program for it, which became my excuse for making games. (laughs) So his job was to write programs to test the hardware, and since a computerized game is a program as well, he was well within his boundaries. I love it. So (laughs) So what kind of games did he make on his crispy, fresh foreign hardware? Let's take a little step back. As we already established, Alexei was big into puzzles. Mm-hmm. especially a certain kind of puzzle called pentomino. Mm-hmm. Um, that it must have been kind of popular at the time. Um, like, do you remember how around 2000, all of a sudden, I, Sudoku was everywhere? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was a German thing, but in Germany, these Japanese Sudoku puzzles flooded the uh, newspaper market. Oh, yeah. They were everywhere. Yeah. You said early 2000s? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of imagine that the pentominos must have been like that at that time. Yeah. I'm trying to think. That that does largely line up with when I remember them being everywhere. I was thinking I was thinking more of late two thousands, but it was a, it's just a guess of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't look anything up. It's totally fine. But yeah, I get what you're saying about that phenomenon where they were just like, you know, you'd walk into a store and suddenly in the magazine rack there'd be like a million Sudoku, you know. Yeah, things. I think I think there's something about when, when a new puzzle comes and it itches people's mind yeah. and it gets, like, I think there's something really powerful about that. Yeah. Um, so I, I believe that pentominos were kind of like that. Um, but le- like, what were these? Um, do you know what a domino is? Sure. Like the, the little gaming piece that looks like two equal square tiles attached to another, making a rectangle. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess since most people know dominoes from setting them up, like most people know them from setting them up in these lines and you make them, um, like you make these chain reactions mm-hmm. and like you, they fall over. And it's, it's pretty satisfying to watch too. It really is. But, um, yeah. Um, and the name pentomino is derived from the word domino. And you assume that the word domino from, from dos domino, it's 
two tiles mm -hmm. that make a rectangle. Pentomino is five tiles that make a rectangle from Penta. Right. The um, the Greek naming convention. Well, that's cool. So, for example, you could also do a triomino, mm -hmm. which would be three equal um, tiles, or a tetromino, that would be four equal squares. And how would a and then of course uh, a, a rectangle consisting of five equal squares would be a pentomino from Penta five. Um, and like you can go on forever and make bigger ominos by doing this. You could call them polyominos. Uh, and there's even puzzles that are not pentominos, but bigger ones. Um, but Alexei liked pentominos. That was his his favorite puzzle. But how do you make a puzzle out of these, these shapes made out of five squares? Uh, the general gist is you get like a set of these pentominos and they can look all kinds of different, like just imagine how many different ways you can combine five squares. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you would get the task to combine them into some kind of shape. Right. Like you have these and turn them into a square, or you have these and turn them into a rectangle. Um, and that would be the puzzle, and you would have to solve it. Pretty simple and um, nothing too complicated. Uh, and these kinds of puzzles, they really date back a long time. Like the, we have proof of them from millennia ago. Wow. But they were made famous in the modern era by an American mathematician called Solomon Golub, who started publishing them in the 50s. What was his name again? Solomon what? Solomon Golomb. G-O-L-O-M-B. Golomb. What a wonderful last name. Okay, thank you. I just needed clarification. Yeah, it's a really nice name. Especially since he's called Sol... <laughs> his whole name has five O's in it. Solomon Golomb. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's pretty rad, yeah. Um, so he was really into these, uh, Alexei, and according to him, you could get three of these geometric puzzles in a Moscow toy shop for a ruble. And because he played them so much at some point, it occurred to him that these puzzles could possibly be implemented as a game uh, on one of their computers. Now, if we think of implementing something on a computer in the 80s, we always have to think of computational limitations. Do you mean know how many different pentomino tiles there are? I, like if you combine five squares into any shape, how many can you do? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm like, are we back? Am I back in high school? And I'm like sitting there and they've got all the blocks and they're like, <laughs> what's the maximum number of permutations that you can make? And like... Permutation is a good word because these are permutations. <laughs> but like as, as yeah. my professor uh, would like to say during lectures, during online lectures... If any of you want to solve this, pause the podcast at this moment, take a pen and paper and try to draw <laughs> out all pentominoes. If you can turn a pentomino and by that turn it into a pentomino that you've already drawn, it is considered to be the same pentomino. If you need to flip the pentomino to make it the same as another, it is not considered the same. How many different pentominoes are there? What do you think, Tyler? Just take a guess. <laughs> More than four. There is more than four, definitely. There is great. It's eighteen hundred points for eighteen me. different pentominoes. <laughs> and really, okay. Th this alone is a, is an interesting mathematical puzzle um, that um, is kind of fun to solve. And not only that, mm -hmm. creating a digital version of eighteen different game pieces that could be turned in a puzzle game mm -hmm. in in real time 
was not possible for Alexei's computer. It was it wasn't it, it didn't work. He couldn't make 18 different tiles. The computer couldn't handle it. I'm trying to remember how many he actually used. I'm trying to envision them all in my head. <laughs> I'm thinking because I know what this is. So if I'm gonna say six, was it six? I can think of six distinct ones. Oh, we're gonna get to this. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So if pentominoes have too many so-called permutations, how could you reduce the number of permutations? Do you know how to do that? I don't know what you mean. Okay, so if we combine five five squares uh-huh. into tiles, and all combinations make 18 different versions of that, mm-hmm. how do we get less mm, tiles? I see what you're saying. And we do that by reducing it by one square. We turn the yeah. pentomino into a tetromino with tet- tetra. Yeah, it's only four. Sorry, I just always assume um, you're trying to trick me. <laughs> like, no, not, I'm always on. Good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I will. I will stop torturing you with combinatorics now. I'm, I'm no, no, like, it's sorry. Okay. <laughs> so, but, but now to our listeners again. I'm always skeptical of Docs. <laughs> He's always got some game. You already solved because you paused the podcast and you solved that pentominoes have uh-huh. eighteen different tiles. How many different tiles do tetrominoes have? Pause the podcast. Now we get back. How many is the tile? Tell me. Just get the no number. Idea. I don't it's, know, six. It's only seven. Um, really? The, yeah. Pentominus had 18. And mm-hmm. by just taking one square away, we more than half it. So that's pretty good. And that's yeah, significantly that less. Yeah, it's significantly less and thus far easier to um, calculate the rotation on a machine. Mm-hmm. So... Alexei programmed a puzzle game using these tetrominoes on his computer called the Electronica 60. And the Electronica did not have a display, so he had to depict the blocks in the form of text, like an old ASCII game. Really? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's cool. And let's hear a quote from him, from, of him of how he continued. Next, I put together the procedures for manipulating the pieces. Pick a tile, flip it, rotate it. Put the playfield... But the playfield filled up in 20 seconds flat. Also, once you'd filled a line, it was kind of dead, so why keep it on the screen? So I made each full line disappear, which was key. I was a pretty good programmer, and it took me about three weeks to get something controllable on screen. I pretended I was debugging my program, but in truth, I just couldn't stop playing it. When other people tried it, they couldn't either. It was so abstract that was its great quality. It appealed to everybody. So I think by now you know what game we're talking about. I think you've knew you've known for a while, right? Yeah. Well, it's Tetris, obviously. It's obviously Tetris. I mean, even it's like um, Tetrominoes is even in like you know name adjacent yeah, to the, Tetris. The name Tetris comes from Tetromino, of course. But combined, some interviews say from combined with his favorite sport, which was tennis. So it's Tetromino, tennis, Tetris. Okay. Um. I find that weirdly specific, but who knows? Yeah, this, you know how sometimes these things pass into legends, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So, some, yeah, I don't know. Let's just, let's just keep it. It's, it yeah. But Tetris from Tetra, because all of these are Tetrominoes. Just imagine what would have happened if he had the calculating power, which was available at the time, time but his computer just was pretty shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would have used Pentominoes instead instead of Tetrominos, and we'd been playing Pentis all day now. Pentis. Like, <laughs> I don't know why something about that just doesn't... Pentis. Maybe because it sounds like penis. Yeah, I'm but, thinking uh, because it sounds like penis. I think uh, that's why. <laughs> yeah. I just, 
Just imagine this world. Cars would be flying. We'd be playing Panthers. Peter Molyneux would still be selling beans. <laughs> Everything would be fine. Um, what an alternate reality that would be. <laughs> I don't think that it's necessary to explain Tetris to anybody, but we'll still do it. Yeah, just we should. Very briefly. Yeah, just in case. The game consists of a rectangular playing field. At the top of the field, Tetrominoes keep spawning one after the other, and the player can move them around. They move them to the left, to the right, and make them fall down entirely. And the goal is to keep the game running as long as possible by filling up rows on the bottom of the playing field. If a row gets filled, it disappears and clears space. Which Tetromino spawn is chosen completely random, and that is the whole game. Yeah. Now, of course, you you got later. If you some of you might have played later editions that had like what's it like Tetris ninety nine Battle on the Switch or whatever, where it's like competitive. Yeah, it's a battle royale game all of a sudden. <laughs> yes, of course, because everything has to be. Um, it was a good game. I played it. It was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, anyway, continue on. I won't postulate about things. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll let you do your episode because I'm like, how did this affect like Poyo Poyo and like, yeah. Anyway. Go ahead. I think the influence Tetris had is um, inconceivable. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Alexei knew this back then already because he was addicted to his own game. <laughs> and the few people that he showed it to also very quickly developed severe addictions to just playing this game. And he wanted to publish this game because of how his colleagues were reacting to it. To make the game more publishable, Alexei recruited a young programmer called Vadim Gerasimov, who was only 16 years old at the time. Vadim, he was familiar with computers that were more common around the world, like the International Business Machine, better known as the IBM. And Vadim was supposed to port Tetris so it could be made available for a broader audience. Vadim only takes two weeks to create a stable version for the IBM that is not just a one-to-one -one port, but a great design improvement. The Tetrominos got colored and were actual graphics and not just different letters. And the game even got its scoring system that Alexei did not implement. He didn't care about the scores. He just wanted to make the game go on forever. So yeah. Vadim's IBM version is the first version of Tetris that actually looks like what we today know as Tetris. Hmm. So what was the plan here? Like Alexei and Vadim actually had made a few more games too, and they had the idea to sell them as a collection called the Computer Carnival. To, like they wanted to make a business out of it. And they wanted to self-publish. There was a problem though. What was the problem? The Iron Curtain. The problem is that <laughs> the Iron Curtain. The problem is that their home was the Soviet Union, <laughs> and while in the Western Hemisphere, already like the Western Hemisphere had a well-established video game industry, as we know, this is the eighties. The Soviet Union had nothing even close to that. Especially entrepreneurship was not really a thing in the communist society of the Soviet Union. Civilians selling software for personal profit, unheard of. Also, as members of the Moscow Institute of Science, those games developed on the hardware of the Institute belong to the Institute and therefore belong to the state. Mm, that's true. So, I hadn't thought about the whole like public funding of that. But you know what I'm still stuck on is what did you say a computer? It was called the Computer Carnival? Yeah, yeah I, I roughly translated it. Maybe it had a better name and Russian. I, don't I know. mean, that just sounds fucking rad. Come on, kids, we're going down to the Computer Carnival!
yeah, I think like I think you could have considered this as computer fair as well. Okay. So just yeah, that was the idea of it. So instead of selling it because they knew they couldn't do it, they just started copying the game onto floppy disk and handed them to friends and colleagues. Uh, and Tetris started spreading through the institutes like wildfire. A colleague of Alexei called Pokilko apparently had to ban the game from the medical institute because people just stopped working and only played Tetris all day. And due to the success of this game, Alexei wanted to try again and he asked the director of the institute directly if he could publish the game, but they refused. They did something else with Alexei's knowledge, without Alexei's knowledge, though. To further spread the game, the director, maybe with good sense of foresight, they sent it to Budapest, mm -hmm. and especially the Budapest Institute of Computer Science in Hungary. And at this point, we kind of have to talk about the influence of the Soviet Union a bit. The Soviet Union itself was not everything behind the Iron Curtain. Some of the nations only belong to the so-called Warsaw, pa Warsaw Pact. I don't know how to say Warsaw in English, but um, it, Warsaw Pact, but not the Soviet Union itself. And they were kind of considered satellite states, like, for example, Hungary. A satellite state is a nation that is formally independent while also being under heavy political influence from another country. In this case, the Soviet Union. In 1985, though, something had taken root in Hungary, which would help Tetris a lot. And that something was capitalism. Of course. Good old <laughs> capitalism. Yeah. Uh, so also, I had, to go, I had to go to Google just to make sure that I wasn't crazy here. We would typically pronounce that as the Warsaw Pact. Warsaw Pact. But I yeah. just wanted to be sure that I hadn't misheard it my entire life because that's a pretty common thing, right? It's in German. It's the city that is named after. It's called Warsaw. So I I'm, I have a hard time getting rid of the sh when I say it because it's Warsaw Pact. Right. And you say Warsaw, and this my mouth just can't handle it. I don't know. <laughs> Warsaw. Well, uh, make me say squirrel, and I I start. I don't know. I'm sorry. Do you have a problem um, with squirrels, ducks? Oh. Uh, no, Perhaps squirrels, it. depending on your pronunciation. <laughs> it was a total random thing, but uh, I had a friend. I had a friend who went to Australia one time, and he was working in Australia. A friend from the United States, and he was working in Australia for a bit. And a guy turned to him and said, "Hey, is it true that you guys just have like squirrels everywhere in the United States, and that they just like run around and do stuff?" <laughs> He's like, um, yeah, but it was like, at that point, I realized that they just don't have squirrels in Australia, apparently. Maybe they do in some parts, dude, I don't know, but like, the dude was like, dude, flabbergasted that squirrels were a thing, and that's just like so strange to me. The presence of squirrels in the U.S. is severely underestimated by the U.S. Americans. You have a lot of squirrels. Oh, they're everywhere. It's not normal. <laughs> yeah, they're absolutely everywhere, and they are fucking adorable. Heads, man. <laughs> hey, don't talk shit on my tree rats. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love we are, in, we are in Hungary, we are in Budapest. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. It's 1985. There's capitalism. Yep. Um, so if you like a trader, it's 1985, and, and there is capitalism. 
So if you're like a trader and you want to look for expert business in the Eastern Bloc, mm -hmm. you would go to Budapest. Budapest is where you find like a more or less free market. One of the people that came to Budapest to do business was Robert Stein. Robert, he had a software company that was based in Hungary. He was looking for software. By now, Tetris had been ported further to other hardware. There was an Amiga version, an Apple version, and so on. People wanted to play this game so badly that they put a lot of effort into spreading it. They ported it, ported it themselves. This was no corporate effort. So when Robert Stein encountered Tetris at the Budapest Institute of Computer Science, he immediately knew that he had to acquire the publishing rights. The problem is, when he asks who made the game, people tell him the truth. Some dude in the Moscow Institute of Science. Now, how would he contact some dude in, the Mos in Moscow about licensing rights? He manages to contact him via a telex machine, which was a fax predecessor. Mm -hmm. And Robert offers Alexei a bunch of money for the licensing rights. Alexei's English was really bad, though. <laughs> but he managed to send back some kind of positive answer, implying that he was going to try to arrange, like, a deal or something. This was no easy task. So since doing business with a Western company could easily get Alexei sent to prison, oh. Alexei tries to take the official path by trying to convince his institute to sell the licensing rights to Robert. The institute actually has a licensing department, but apparently the bureaucracy and the process of organizing negotiations via a fax machine were so tedious and slow that Stein just gave up he stopped trying to get the license. Does this mean that he will not publish the game, though? Yep, he did the exact right thing, and uh, <laughs> he waited appropriately for the university to contact him through an old telex machine, and everything was okay, and capitalism was perfect. There's kind of a problem. <laughs> he before even giving up, he already started selling the license further. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, who could have seen this coming? <laughs> he just does not care. Since apparently the Moscow Institute of Science is incapable of maintaining their licenses, he might as well just ignore it. Oh, of course. This decision yes. will influence the future of Tetris a great deal. But for now, let's just say with stay with Robert, who will now publish an unlicensed game. He really had no other choice. Yeah, of course. Uh, there's Since money to be had. <laughs> what are you going to turn down money? Capitalism. Come on, man. Money, money, money. You need as much as you can. Line must go But up. I, th I think how he explains this line of thought was when he started the negotiations, he believed that he would get the license because nobody else was negotiating. Mm. So he already struck deals with other people showing them, hey, I'm already negotiating but we can speed this up because I'm going to get this license. I already can give it to you mm -hmm. because it will be it, it will be mine as well. We will all have licenses. But so he already, um, he sold the rights to publish the game to other companies. Knowing this, less kind people though would kind of describe Robert as a con man. But we are not less kind people, mm -hmm. right? We're just... We're assuming the best in him. Maybe he's a good guy, right? Most rights, except for those um, 
for those rights concerning coin-operated hardware and portable hardware, he sold to Mirosoft. Mirosoft was a subsidiary of the Maxwell Communication Corporation. This British company was one of the biggest players in publishing media at the time. And what we will have to remember about this company is that it was managed by a man called Robert Maxwell. And Maxwell could be described as like the symbol for questionable government connections, because not only did he have connections to the British, but also to the Soviet government. And remember, Robert Maxwell's company subsidiary now had the rights to sell an unlicensed Soviet game. This will be important later. Okay. Stein's choice of corporations to partner up with was pretty smart, and we will see why, because this is a powerful company. He didn't choose them by accident. He sold it to them because he knew if something goes wrong with this license, they will be able to manipulate their way out of it and help him. Meanwhile, in Russia, Alexei keeps on living. Sometimes things don't work out, you know? You could call it like Russian optimism. <laughs> this, uh, mm, things go bad. It's fine. Um, it could always be worse. He makes new games And this time, instead of going to the head of his institute or the licensing department, he just goes to the Ministry of Trade, specifically the Elektronorg Technica, whose job it was to handle import and export of soft and hardware. He gets some information about exporting his new software. And while doing that, he randomly in conversation drops that he had trouble before negotiating a licensing deal with this Hungarian dude called Robert Stein and the people at the Electronorg Technica. They can't believe what they are hearing. Some guy just did negotiations that actually they should have done? What the fuck is going on? Anarchy! Who even allowed Alexei to dare to negotiate anything like a licensing deal? All of a sudden, the Soviet bureaucracy starts rolling And this ministry department, they go crazy. Electronorg Technica contacts Robert Stein via fax. They reignite the licensing negotiations. And while still tedious, they finally start moving towards a real deal. And in the June of 1987, only two years, they come to an agreement for licensing deals. What does the deal say, though? Robert Stein is licensed to publish the game for various types of of computers. That's what it says. Nothing more. Okay. That is not what Stein sold to other people already. But the wording is kind of vague. So Stein shrugs and goes ahead. Eh, mm, might as well. What's the worst <laughs> that could happen? <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Definitely nothing of apocalyptic proportions for his personal life. Sure. <laughs> November 1987. Tetris releases in the USA for PC. The hype is huge. Partially, maybe, because it's marketed as the first game from beyond the Iron Curtain. The entire design of the game screams Soviet Union. The title is written in Kyrillic. The background of the game shows St. Basil's Cathedral, probably the most iconic building in Moscow. One of the buildings, like, you know it, even though you don't know where exactly it is or how it's called, but everybody saw this building in his life on some picture or another. And Tetris turns into one of the most successful games in Britain and the USA. Maxwell Communications Corporation, after the initial success, they try to further squeeze money out of Tetris by publishing the game on all kinds of consoles. At this point, another person enters the stage. 
So I'm, I'm sorry, but this story is a terrible mess, and it's gonna it's gonna get so much worse. It's okay. His name his name was Hank Rogers, and he was a programmer from the Netherlands, but moved to Japan working for Nintendo. Okay. And while he did some programming for the Japanese video game giant, at the time of the story, he already ascended into the publishing departments. And Hank Rogers, he saw Tetris at the Consumer Electronics Show at the CES, and he liked it, just like everybody else, and wanted to acquire the rights for Nintendo, specifically to publish it for the Famicom, a pretty legendary console we have mentioned several times by now. The problem is... Microsoft sold the rights to publish Tetris for consoles in the Western market to Atari. So, Hank Rogers flies to Atari HQ, camps in front of their main, main entrance, and forces them to negotiate with him to publish Tetris for Nintendo. How long did he camp there? It doesn't specify that. It, this is it's kind of a legend in the sources, but people really like to quote this. this there's no confirmation on this, but... In all the stories of all the different people, they all mention it. I just, like, want to imagine this guy, like, just, like, camped out in this, like, horrible tent in front of their office. And anytime someone walks out, he, like, crawls out of the tent like a zombie. And he's like, Tetris, Tetris, publishing, Tetris, publishing. And they're like, oh, well, we should probably listen to this guy. He seems like he knows however what's it up. Went, maybe he just had a normal meeting, but however <laughs> it went, he succeeded and he got the publishing rights to publish Nintendo for the Famicom in Japan. Okay. For some reason, I feel like this should shock me, like that he like that he was so intense about it, but after what we have already heard about in previous episodes, this seems like regular video game company employee behavior. Yeah. So yeah. Yep, it was just absolutely batshit bonkers all the time. So, slowly but steadily, Tetris gets ripped apart in a publishing frenzy. Microsoft and Spectrum Holobytes, which was Microsoft's American sister company, published Tetris for PC. Atari publishes a console version of Tetris for the NES via their subsidiary Tengen. Mm. Nintendo publishes a console version of Tetris for the Famicom in Japan. But a lot of legal business remains kind of unclear. The coin-operated and portable machine publishing rights have never been handed out, and strictly speaking, Robert Stein's slicing deal with Electronorg Technica does not mention any console publishing rights. All of these people that have publishing rights actually don't have publishing rights. Or at least it's not legally clear. I think you'd have to argue in a court of law that a console is a computer which I think you might be able to do, but that would be the only way that I think you could pull that off. In a court of law, you could argue that we will get some insight about that from Hank Rogers. Hank Rogers, he is thirsting for the rights to publish Tetris on portable machines because, as all of us know, Nintendo is about to crush the market with the first Game Boy. And then there's Maxwell Communications Corporation that are planning on maintaining their PC publishing rights to Tetris and also want to acquire more and last but not least, there's Robert Stein, who has insufficient licensing and really wants to have the right to coin-operated and portable machines. This is a huge fuck mess. But we're going to see how it's going to turn out. <laughs> so while researching this, I was fully prepared for endless legal battles with no proper showdown, but boy, was I wrong. <laughs> the sun rises 
upon the 22nd February of 1989. Hank Rogers has been trying to contact Robert Stein for months because he wants Game Boy Tetris. Robert Stein knows that he can't give Hank Rogers Game Boy Tetris because his licensing is big as fuck. Hank is hmm. pissed. And not just that. Hank was, as he said, in deep kimchi because he was currently producing 200,000 game cartridges at $10 a piece and apparently put up all of his in-laws' property as collateral for it. Wow. Well, we know what Hank's going to do. This is He's going to win him over by camping outside of his office and screaming, Dodgers! What, what have we already seen Hank do? Just fly to where the problem is and solve it yourself. Are you Hank fucking serious? Take, he takes a plane to Moscow. <laughs> I was kidding. I was leaning no. into the bit. <laughs> he literally flies to Moscow looking for the Ministry of Trade to negotiate with Electronorg Technica himself. Oh, my God. So there he was standing in the center of Moscow with a tourist visa and not a word of Russian trying to find some organization they called ELORG, which was the abbreviation for Electronorg Technica. Soviets, by the way, they love abbreviations. So doing business on a tourist visa is illegal, by the way. <laughs> so, so since he had no clue where to go. That doesn't matter to an American. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we just, listen, we just go to other countries. We are all heart. We don't have any idea of the language at all and just expect everyone to cater to us. Come on, man. It's the American way. Uh, as as I know Hank Rogers was an, uh, a Dutch person living in uh, Japan, but he still didn't care. See, he had <laughs> see, I heard that earlier in the story. But just due to his actions, I just assumed he was an American because that's what we do. We just assume that everybody's in an American. My, and they in can my all mind, speak to he us. seems very American as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so since he had no clue where to go, he just gave money to some woman standing in his hotel lobby to hire her as an interpreter. <laughs> and weirdly enough, she kind of she kind of knew everything about Moscow, and she also spoke English. And she led him straight to the ministry, to Elorg. And she knew where all the offices were. And they kind of led him straight into a meeting room. And apparently he was interrogated for hours. He was caught trying to trade on a tourist visa and they wanted to punish him. Ah. He already saw himself on the next train to Siberia. He kept pushing for the rights. Like he, he he didn't care. They could kill him, but he wants rights for his Game Boy Tetris. There are some things more important than my life, and that's Tetris on the Game Boy. The man was married and had children, but he sacrificed his life for Game Boy Tetris. Those those kids will understand that their father died fighting for a cause. A cause that he believed in. The right to move tiny blocks around on a handheld system. And if we can't die standing up for that, then what good is living? The director, the director of Elorg was called Belikov. And he kept pushing him to get the rights. And he claimed that they never... But Belikov, he was like, we never gave licensing rights to anyone. What are you talking about? Um, but Rogers, he kind of got Belikov to set up a bigger meeting for the next day. Um, and he kind of got his... Um, his head out of the noose. Uh, people were kind of relaxing around him. 
So the next day, there was 10 people in the room with him. Politicians, lawyers, KGB agents, and actually, Alexei himself, the creator of Tetris. Wow. One thing that the head of ELORG noticed while inspecting the licensing deal with Robert Stein, that only Hank Rogers told him about, was that the deal did not only include this famous vague phrase, license to publish Tetris for various computers, but it also included licensing fees. And those fees that Robert Stein had to pay had not been paid for three months. Oh. So Belikov instantly contacts Robert Stein. And Stein sees his opportunity because Stein also wanted to get in contact with the Russian Ministry of Trade for a while, but they are kind of hard to reach. Uh, mm -hmm. And Stein, he sees his opportunity to appease Elorg and the, like meet with them personally by giving them their money. And he wants also, after appeasing them, he also wants to acquire the licensing rights for coin-operated and portable machines, as we know. And those portable machine licenses, he only wanted to instantly sell them to Hank because he knew about Hank. Right. So Stein does not know that Hank is in Moscow at the moment. And Stein does not have to hire a KGB interpreter to get to ELOG. And immediately gets a meeting with Belikov because he fucking goes to Moscow too by plane immediately. Just, there's and just like no planning. None of these people have planning. They're just like, I'll just fucking go to Moscow then. Like this blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. And Belikov, <laughs> Belikov, the director of ELOG, he has a little surprise for Stein because of something that Hank Rogers showed him. Hank showed Belikov pictures of Tetris on the Famicom even though Elok never gave out licenses for console publishing. So Hank and Belikov further scour the licensing contract with Stein and stumble over the infamous phrasing publishing for various computers. And Hank Rogers, who knows a fair share about video game licensing, tells Belikov that this phrasing would legally include everything from portable to coin operator. There it is. But also, also consoles, and computers. So Belikov, he adds something to the licensing contract, which he shows Stein when he later comes to him. It's an addendum describing horrendous punitive payments for the delayed licensing fees. Stein agrees to review the contract and to return later with a decision if he can accept these new conditions. What neither Stein nor Hank Rogers know is that another person came to Moscow this day. The Maxwell Communications Corporation wanted to secure the licensing as well. So the son of Robert Maxwell, Kevin Maxwell, arrived in Moscow the same day to talk to <laughs> Belikov, just like the others did. Wow. And Belikov, he's like, whoa, everybody's interested in Russian mm. innovation. This is really good for us. <laughs> but he has to, like, Kevin Maxwell just wants to buy all the licensing. He's like, we have the money, give us the licensing. Um, but Belikov, he tells Maxwell... You have to wait because Robert Stein is current. We have a contract negotiations going already. And once Stein has reviewed the contract, um, Kevin Maxwell will be allowed to do a counter proposal if he wants to. But they, like, Belikov wants to keep everything in order. So he just sends Maxwell away. But Maxwell, he's kind of, he's kind of fine with this because his company is the biggest, has the biggest market share of all people involved in this deal. And Whatever, like whatever deal Hank Rogers or Robert Stein strike, they will just they will just make a better bid 
and just buy it, right? It's easy money. Robert Stein, he takes a few days to think on this updated contract that he was given. But since he knows how the licenses for the coin-operated and portable machines are going to make him rich, he agrees to the huge punitive payments. He's just like, I'm going to, I'm going to make so much money with this. I'm going to pay this, pun this, this punitive payment. Hmm. So he signs the contract. And by doing that, probably screwed up majorly. Oh. Why? Because Belikov is smart. He's a smart son of a bitch. The addendum contained specification on the vague phrasing that Hank showed him a few days before. Now the phrase says, the machine Tetris is licensed, the machine's Tetris is licensed for are PC computers consisting of a processor, a screen, a floppy drive, a keyboard, and an operating system. Wow. And this now clearly excludes portable devices, consoles, and coin-operated machines. Why does it exclude them? Because Rogers made a very generous offer giving Nintendo the licensing for consoles and portable devices. And since now Robert Stein accepted the addendum, thereby accepting the exclusion of consoles and portable devices from his license, Belikov could happily accept the deal with Nintendo, unless... Maxwell made a better offer. So they sent Maxwell effects, notifying them of the offer Nintendo made, giving them the chance to do a counter-proposal. They have a deadline of one day, but Maxwell just does not respond within the set time, and Belikov signs the contract with Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And Nintendo starts going to town with the new power they just acquired. They sue Atari because they illegally, illegally used their console license for years to sell Tetris. And of course, by doing this, Maxwell Communications Corporation gets pulled into this legal massacre. Since they gave out the console licenses to Atari via their subsidiary Mirasoft. And according to the legend, Robert Maxwell was so furious and he refused to give up. And as we mentioned, Robert Maxwell was a well-connected man in Britain and the Soviet Union. His company actually published the autobiography of Gorbachev. Really? And it is said that he pressured Gorbachev personally to reverse Elok's and Belnikov's decision to give him the licensing team instead of Nintendo. And this pressure Maxwell applied actually worked a little. Gorbachev initiates an investigation into Elok to check if the contract with Nintendo and the addendum of the licensing deal with Robert Stein are correct, but it's all pretty watertight. Maxwell tries to personally meet Gorbachev. But since it's 1989 and his country is rapidly disassembling, Gorbachev really has other problems than some British businessman. Mm. <laughs> Nintendo wins. And that's it. That's the whole Tetris story. Wow. So let's wrap this up. Yeah. Tetris sells 35 million times for the Game Boy and is believed to be the essential game of the original Game Boy. We will never know what the Game Boy would have been without it. Alexei didn't see a single ruble of those initial deals. Only after 10 years when the licensing had to be renewed was he included in the profits. Though he and Hank Rogers became close friends. They both live in the US and have a company together called the Tetris Company which owns the branding rights of Tetris. Oh, cool. I do not know what happened to Robert Stein, 
but I, I feel like he probably hit under a stone after signing that contract. <laughs> I do know that his deal financially ruined Atari, Maxwell Corporation, which, by the way, was dissolved in 1991 because of this legal battle that they had to do. Uh, it was a massacre. And that's it. This is the pretty insane history of Tetris. That crazy legal showdown at the end, like, I always assume that those kind of things happen and like we've kind of touched on them like briefly before in the podcast but it's still really interesting to hear that like all laid out like you know a guy using some tech to mess around with makes a game that ends with this massive multi-corporation battle between different corporations in different countries and the soviet union and like that's just crazy to me to think about yeah it puts a proper dent in society right all of a sudden really weird yeah 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 so uh i assume you've like how often do you think you've played tetris like i know i played it on the game boy and i know that i played it um in some various other old school consoles but i don't think i touched it again until i was like an adult and i think tetris 99 was really when i when i got back to it a little bit i know that a good friend of mine they always like some people always have books and newspapers on their toilet they always had an old game boy with tetris on their toilet so you could always play game boy while you were taking a shit <laughs> <laughs> um that's interesting um <laughs> I I don't have a snarky joke for that. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, that's really cool. Um, I appreciate you telling me this because, uh, I don't know, really fascinating to think about that game and how much it like affected. Like, think about how many other, we'll call them Tetris clones are out there, you know? Um, I think my first interaction with something that was adjacent to that was, I mentioned Poyo Poyo earlier. Um, mm -hmm. I mentioned Poyo Poyo and like Poyo Poyo is like sort of similar to Tetris in a way. And like you have falling blocks, but you have to match colors and they don't have to be like in a horizontal line. Um, and they can like chain as they fall. Um, but I played a version of that called Dr. Robotnik's mean bean machine, which was just a reskinned nice. Poyo Poyo. I think we talked about it like the whole way back in episode one. Um, uh, that was, I played a ton of that as a kid. Um, but yeah, like like basically spawned an entire genre, right? Fascinating to think about. Yeah, I feel like the the general vibe of Tetris is something that can be can be seen in hundreds of games that came after it, and it, I think it's the first one to do it. It's really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, and also like normalizing accessible puzzle games. Mm -hmm. I think is important there as well. Yeah. I wonder if there was other, like I didn't do any good research on it, if there was any, any puzzle games that were that far spread beforehand. And I'm, I kind of doubt it, but I don't know. Um, it would be really interesting to do some research on that. Yeah. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to think of games that even came out of that era. Like I'm, I'm thinking of columns I know came out of that era, but that was later. Um, that was in the nineties. Yeah. So yeah, I can't think of anything. Although my my gaming knowledge is a bit limited in that. There was there, there was tons of games for those second and third generation consoles. And there, there must have been some puzzle games among them that probably yeah. resembled something yeah, like yeah. it, but nothing was like Tetris. I mean, it's pretty unique in that way. Uh, and it's pretty weird. 
it's just so easy to just pick up and play even if you suck at it right like you get you get the gist of it almost instantly and that's like really cool and i would even claim that it is the most famous video game of all time not i mean there's pong pong is well known but it's not like Mm -hmm. it's not as universal as tetris but that's that's just a gut feeling i don't know i think tetris is the zeus Hmm. of all games no i can see it though i mean like i think because not just gamers know tetris everybody knows tetris and everybody basically knows how tetris works. yeah that's interesting even if so my 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 brain immediately goes to like quantifiable metrics and i just don't think you can do that right because like yeah i don't think so either this is just gut feelings but i also because i know that in my surrounding it kind of turned into idiomic language where you're like if you have to pack something really tightly you call it tetris yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i literally just said that to andrew the other day i was like you're good at the whole tetris aspect of this like putting things in boxes yeah Yeah. it has a meaning in general language Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's interesting too to to think about because yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about how it gets like adopted in that way yeah. uh, to become part of like the vernacular. Yeah, because you don't like you don't say like you're really good at the Mario aspect of this. You're really good at the Pac Man aspect of eating, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> up, 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 yeah. up. <laughs> oh man, I just I've seen him down so many ghosts and pills, yeah. so many pills. I mean, I don't think there's many contenders for that most famous video game of all time. Yeah. Um, I think it's something like Pac-Man, Pong, Tetris. And that's all before all those 90s Yeah, because I guess we'd also have to think on, I guess, and we're getting into a side thing here, which I think is fine. Uh, you know, but wouldn't, like, could you say, though, that, like, maybe Pokemon is more, like, famous with quotes? I don't know, I guess, and this gets into I mean, metrics. I, I would definitely say so, but it gets confusing here because Pokemon is a That's franchise true. that has so many dimensions. But yeah, everybody Yeah, because, you know, now That's that you right. mention it, I didn't actually play a Pokemon game until I was a late teenager. and But I knew of the games, and I played the card game, and I watched the show when I was a kid. So yeah, so again, here we are. The, you know, how you define something affects what is inside and outside of that right yeah we've we've gotten to this point a lot we're like yeah but no i i I think that that's really good though and you know i don't know it's hard for me to be like it's the most famous game of all time but i think you make a really solid argument that like everybody knows how to play tetris and everybody knows what tetris is yeah we're not gonna make a youtube video where you where you have like a face on the (laughs) thumbnail that goes like what? And then top 10 most famous video games click and supply don't forget to ring the bell smash that like Um, button shit like that no (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying it feels like it's up there. And if you feel yeah. differently, just tell us about it. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate this. Um, I guess, like, it's so interesting how different we are in our, like, choices of things that we choose to research. Because, like, I never once considered Tetris, and yet it's so important. So I appreciate you doing this one. Yeah, I felt, like, when I stumbled across it, I was like, this is kind of necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had to do it. I mean, we definitely have done some sort of foundational episodes at times. And I think, you know, they're good because not only is it really important to know, then we can also refer back to them. Right. Yes. But anyway. Okay. Well, uh, anything else you want to add, my man? I don't think so. Okay. 
I hope all of you have a good day. Uh, thanks to Andre for editing our episodes. Thanks for all the people mm-hmm. for being so nice to us and supportive. Yeah. And thanks to, I don't know, uh, random strangers that yeah. sometimes deserve kindness. It's true. Uh, and I will, I will echo what Doc says. Um, you know, it's... Uh, just knowing that people listen to this and enjoy it is a motivator uh sometimes these episodes are hard to put together and sometimes these things take a lot of time um and uh sometimes it's hard to muster the desire to write these things so um we just really appreciate that we appreciate that you appreciate it because otherwise we'd just be talking (laughs) so so yeah be good to each other out there and um we'll, we'll see you soon yep take care Have a good one, friends. See ya. Stop the outro. Stop. I I forgot something. Sources. Okay, first... German Podcast, Geschichten aus der Geschichte, Episode 331. To all the German listeners, hört euch den Podcast an, gibt's auf Spotify und ist das Beste, was ich an Podcasts jemals gehört habe. Article by The Guardian from 2014 called How We Made Tetris, containing a bunch of interviews with the people involved. The homepage of Alex Hayes and Hank Rogers, Tetris Company, and an article by CNN called Tetris Video Game History. But there's something else. Special Ducks Easter Egg Special! So, we can't talk about Tetris without talking about Tetris music. There were several themes for the different versions of the game, but we'll start with the NES version of 1989. This one used music from the famous romantic Russian composer Pyotr Tchaikovsky. The theme used was a segment of the dance of the Sugar Plum Ferry, which is part of the world-famous Nutcracker Ballet. For the NES, it was arranged by digital music legend Hirokazu Tanaka. Let's have a listen to a live performance by my wife. Now, the Game Boy version didn't use this one, but they also used a piece of Russian music culture, which is the so-called Korobieniki. In 1861, the poet Nikolai Nekrasov published a poem called Korobieniki, and it got so popular that it turned into a famous Russian folk song. In 1989, this one got arranged by Hirokazu Tanaka as well, and has thereby turned into the unmistakable Tetris theme. Let's hear this one performed by my wife and my nine-month-old daughter singing along. Thank <laughs> you.
Alexei, the programmer of Tetris, said that he kind of felt bad about the publishers choosing these pieces of Russian music, since he felt like it would overshadow achievements of the Russian music culture and Tchaikovsky and the the Korobieniki would only be recognized as the Tetris music. Anyway, that's us. Have a good day. See you around. Computer carnival. Fuck yeah. <laughs>